The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Whenever you read a good biography... Uh, one thing that you'll notice that takes place at the end is there's usually several pages, three, four, five pages, that just have little snippets that, that kind of figure out what exactly happened to these figures that are around the main figure. Usually, the book ends when the main character dies, but you don't know what happened to his or her spouse or their children or all of these other figures that play into the story. So this is a common way at the end of historical books or even movies to kind of tell you what happens eventually to these people. It's just a satisfying conclusion. You'll see this perhaps at the end of movies like Miracle, the story of the hockey team, the U.S. hockey team beating Russia, or The Sandlot, where at the end it tells you what all these kids grew up to do. Usually, by the way, I find this humorous. There's usually one guy in there who kind of ended up not being so great, and so they kind of skim over most of what he's done in his life. It's usually amusing to find those but this is just a way for the, the author to quickly and satisfactorily tie up loose ends for you so that you don't leave the book with a ton of questions. It summarizes everything that the author wants you to know and understand about how those people's lives turned out. Today, we've arrived at Genesis 35, which was just read for us so well by Jim. This is when Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to tie up loose ends. This is the last chapter where Jacob will ever be the main focus in the book of Genesis. From this point forward, the spotlight is going to shift away from Jacob and will always be on Jacob's children. So this is going to be our final sermon this summer from Genesis, and we'll finish out Genesis next summer with the life of Joseph. And I find this to be a very fitting, proper way to close this out as we bring together and, f and tie off all these loose ends. We're simply going to walk through the 10 major story threads one by one and tie off these loose ends as we go. For each one of them, we're going to consider a short epilogue that is listed in the text. But because there's so many of them, there's 10 of them, we're going to move through them very rapidly. Normally, I would not feel comfortable doing this. Normally, I would not be comfortable moving through these application points that fast. However, I do feel okay about it today in the way that we're preaching for one major reason which is this. Most of the application points that I'm going to give you today, in fact, I think all of them, have been stated previously this summer. These are not new to us. They're not even new. Uh, they've been said in the recent weeks because what is taking place here is not foreign to what has been taking place in the entire life of Jacob. So the most significant points we're going to land on a little bit more. Those will be towards the end, but we're going to move through these really quickly as we go. So let's pray and let's ask God to give us grace as we hear his word with spiritual ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, I pray that today as we come to a very full, very rich text, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see all of the things in it that you desire for us to know. God, I ask that our minds would be filled with knowledge, but more than that, and much more significantly than that, God, I pray that that knowledge would not lead to ourselves being puffed up, but that that knowledge would build us up. Because that I pray that we would not see these things as a way just to be a morally better person, but we would see in these words the reality of Jesus Christ. 
the one true and living Son of God who came to save sinners like us. God, I pray that today as we come to this text, that you would change us, that you would cause us to be more filled with love for Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to walk through and see these different loose ends, and we'll just call them epilogues for each one. We're going to begin with the epilogue of Laban. Now, on July 29th, Pastor Steve Schultz preached about the exodus of Jacob from the oppression of Laban. He detailed all the ways that the people of Israel who left Egypt were just like Jacob being led out from the land of Padanaram. And we see how God was making a mockery of the false gods of Egypt. Likewise, he was making a mockery of the false gods of Laban. Just like the Israelites plundered the Egyptians in Exodus, Jacob also plundered Laban. Think about it. He left the land filled with the good things from it. But even though God took the Israelites out of Egypt, there was still Egypt in the Israelites. At their first opportunity, when Moses was away on the mountain, they created for themselves what? An idol. This big golden calf to worship in place of God. And think of what they did. They bowed down and they gave this cow credit for bringing them out of Egypt. You are the one who has delivered us from our bondage, they say. This is an amazing thing. That's the exact same thing that happened with Jacob. He left the land of Padanaram, but he brought with him part of Laban's house, the household gods. That is why I call this Laban's epilogue. His name is not listed here, but it's because the idols of his house remained with Jacob. He had these household gods with him to that day, but here we see how the house of Jacob is finally purged of all these idols and finally purified before the Lord. We see this in Genesis chapter 35, the first four verses. Read along with me. God said to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Now Tim Keller writes in his book, Counterfeit Gods, an idolatrous, that an idolatrous attachment can lead you to break any promise can lead you to rationalize any indiscretion or can lead you to betray any other allegiance in order to hold on to it, which is the idol. It may drive you to violate all good and proper boundaries. To practice idolatry, he says, is to be a slave. What was going on in the house of Jacob? He had left the slavery of Laban, but he was still a slave to these idols. Jacob is finally going to obey the command of the Lord. He is going to leave Shechem. He's going to return to the place where God had shown him the stairway to heaven. And Jacob knows that before he stands before God, he must first remove all of these practices of idolatry from his household. So what does he do? He collects them all and he secretly buries them in this, under this terebinth tree. Now he also takes the earrings from his people and he buries them. So perhaps they wouldn't fashion them into God. Some scholars think that they, they would have done exactly what the Israelites had done and said, well, if you're going to take my gods, I'm going to take out these earrings and make them into new ones. That's possible. It's also possible that these were forms of worship that they were using to worship the false gods. We're not entirely sure. 
But Jacob commanded to take anything that could possibly be utilized in the worship of other gods and to remove it and to destroy it. And this is the way that he shows repentance. He includes in this, he tells his family, put on clean garments. Now, this is a kind of a strange thing, but we see this occurring multiple times in the Old Testament. This is a way to show repentance. It's a way to show God, I am changed. I am doing something different now than what I was doing in the past. It's a way to show uh, repentance in the Old Testament. So I want to ask church, what, what idols are you holding on to? What are you harboring in your home? What idols have a place of prominence in your own heart? What altar do you worship at? Do you love comfort or entertainment more than you love Christ? Do you place earthly relationships over your relationship with Christ? Is money your God? Is sex your God? Is power your God? If you're worshiping any of these things, they're not going to satisfy you. They're not going to fulfill you. They're going to destroy you instead. And they are an imposter that are seeking to rule your heart. Bury them and live before the face of God. That is what Jacob is seeking to do. He knows he's about to encounter God. What does he do? Get them out of his house. Church, let's remove the idols. If you have located an idol in your heart but are hesitant, don't wait. Jacob lived about 10 years in Shechem before he returned to Bethel. And for those 10 years, he just allowed this to fester. Do not wait. Remove the idols from your life. Point number two, we've got to move quickly. Canaan's epilogue. Now, after the destruction of the Shechemites we heard about last week, this terrible event, Isaac had become a stench in the nostrils of the tribes of Canaan. All these peoples looked at them and said, can you imagine what they did? They told this entire group of people, all the men, you must be circumcised. And the men actually did it. And then while they were recovering, these two young men went and slaughtered them in their recovering beds. So these people had become a stench to the people of Canaan. But now God is protecting Jacob and he's filling the tribes of Canaan with fear so that they're not going to dare even approach Jacob and his family. Read along verse 5. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. This is the last sentiment that we see in the hearts of the Canaanites in the book of Genesis. We never again get to hear about what did the Canaanites think about Jacob and his family. We don't learn about that again until the spies enter the land in Numbers chapter 12 and chapter 13. Do you remember what happened? The 12 spies returned and they gave a bad report. And you know what happened? The people were filled with fear. The people were terrified. Not the Canaanites. The Israelites are now the ones who are fearing. So we read this in Numbers chapter 14, verses 8 through 9. Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb, these four men, they're attempting to convince the people, no, we must obey God. We must enter the land. No matter what, even if there are giants, we will go and we will conquer. So here's what they said. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and he will give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. So do not fear them. Do you see what he's saying here? It's a picture of exactly what was happening with Jacob. He says, if we will just go in, God will protect us. If they would have obeyed, they would have walked in and the people of Canaan would have been the ones who were terrified. 
40 years later, the people of Israel actually do go into the land. And you remember what happens when they reach Jericho? They learn that the people are terrified. And do you know who fought the battle for them? Not Joshua. Joshua didn't fight the battle of Jericho. God fought that battle for them, destroying the city. I say to you, church, church that I love, don't fear the world. Do not fear the world. What could they ever do to you? What can they do to you? Jesus says, don't fear the one who can kill the body, but the one who can destroy the body and soul in hell. Consider Stephen, who was the first martyr of the church. They literally killed this man by throwing rocks at him, but his last moments were not filled with fear. He was looking up into heaven, delighting in the fact that he saw his savior face to face. And when his eyes finally did close in death, they were opened in eternity. And he was still seeing the same face of his savior, Jesus Christ, worshiping him forever. Church, don't fear. Consider the words of Jesus in John fourteen twenty seven. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. So let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. If God is for us, who can be against us? We have the power of Christ on our side. So don't fear the world. Don't fear them for your reputation that you might lose. Live for Christ, honor Christ, and have no fear. Point number three, Rebecca's epilogue. The title of this point might be a little surprising, since once again, we don't even see Rebecca's name in the text. She's not even mentioned, except in referencing her servant, Deborah, who died. But I think that's actually the point. Look at verse 8. And Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he, Jacob, called its name Alan Bakuth, which simply means the weep. The Oak of Weeping. It's a place of, of tears and mourning. Now, years ago, I was leading a Bible study at a, at a church. And there were other Bible studies also taking place in the church. And one man transferred out of his group, his study, and into mine. And he would always, immediately after we finished teaching, he would, he would come to me and he would pour out these massive encouragements on me. It was like very unusual. He was just going above and beyond, saying kind things about the way that I teach. He was comparing me to R.C. Sproul, which is absurd and ridiculous. And I realized very quickly that what he was doing was not actually complimenting me. His goal was not to build me up. What he was attempting to do was he was attempting to undermine and demean and speak negatively about the man who previously led his group. He did not want to build me up. He wanted to tear that man down. So why does this text mention Deborah? There are a lot of different opinions about it. Some believe that maybe, you know, Jacob was a mama's boy and he spent a lot of time with his mama. This is his mama's nurse, so they probably had a good friendship. That's possible that he was just very close to her. That is possible. However, because of what we have previously seen this summer about Rebecca and about how the Bible always downplays her and pretty much ignores her for the rest of Scripture... I think what is actually taking place here is that by elevating and giving a eulogy to this random nurse that we have never heard about before, he is actually saying, this woman is honored, Rebecca is not. I think it's likely that Deborah is being highlighted as a way of underscoring that the Bible will never again focus on Rebecca because of her sin to convince her son to lie to Isaac. 
She's always going to be ignored from this point forward. In fact, as a reminder, she is the only patriarch or patriarch's wife that has no eulogy. Most of those are long and extended. She gets nothing. Point number four, Rachel's epilogue. Now, in verses 16 through 20, we read these words. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Ani, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. There's a lot of things in this section. We're not going to have time to cover all of them. I simply want to pick over a couple of them very briefly. Firstly, Rachel was the love of Jacob's life. We can read this and we can have a calloused heart against it, just looking at all the things that she had done that were wrong. But Jacob loved Rachel. She was so precious to him that he was willing to work for 14 years like it was nothing to be with her. And she was the delight of his eyes and he would always love her the most. In fact, on his deathbed, we see him recount very few things from his life. This was a very common thing that people would do before they would die. They would tell their own story from their own perspective a little bit and then they would give blessings to their children. He doesn't say anything about Leah doesn't even mention her. It's like she's not even there. Instead, he sets his focus on Rachel. For example, Genesis 48, verse 7. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died. To my sorrow, Rachel died. He's still remembering this moment here that took place. He, she died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. That's what he's thinking about right before he dies. He's still remembering the love of his life. So I want you to imagine for a moment the emotions in Jacob's life, what is going on in his heart when he sees that the love of his life has just given him another son. What joy, what delight. Another boy is here. And he was overjoyed with that. But just as quickly as his soul was filled with delight and laughter, his spirits were lifted and then they were dashed to bits as he realizes his wife is not going to make it through this. And she dies. Now, this point overlaps a little bit with the next, so we're just going to jump right into point number five, which is the baby battle epilogue. I think back to Rachel's word as she called out to God in Genesis chapter 30, verse 1. Do you remember what was happening? Leah was having all these kids. She has four kids, and Rachel still has none, and she's so frustrated and angry, and she calls out to God, and she she cries out and says, Give me children, or I will die. Genesis chapter 30, verse 1. And now God gives her her second child, and what happens? She does die. The story of Rachel and Leah, perhaps more than any other in the Bible, gives us a very clear warning against idolizing our children. This is a very natural thing. It's very easy for us to do because we should love our children. It's a good thing when a parent delights in and enjoys their children. It's a good thing when we prioritize them and put emphasis on them in our lives. However, when we make them ultimate, then we are doing something greatly sinful. Rachel should have found her satisfaction in Christ. Her children could never satisfy her. We need to find our satisfaction in Jesus, not our progeny. And if we do, we will ultimately always be disappointed by our kids. They cannot satisfy your soul. Rachel, I'm sure when she was having this baby, she loved it. 
She loved this new baby that was born. But she doesn't say something delightful about him. Instead, she gives him this name, Ben-Oni. What does that mean? The son of my sorrow. Was her sorrow that we talked about in chapter 30 ever ended with her children? Did it come to a close when she had babies? No. Jacob, you know, he went through life being called a usurper, a thief. So he knows the power that's in a name. He's probably been sick of being called you liar, you thief his whole life. So he's not going to allow his son to go through his life being called the son of sorrow. Instead, he changes his son's name to Benjamin or in Hebrew, something more like Benjamin. It's a play on words. It's close to Benoni, but it's just a little bit different. So he changes the name to mean the son of my right hand. Just to pause for a second, to be at the right hand of the father means to be in his favor. That's true throughout the Bible. So here he's saying, this is the son of my favor. Or in other words, Benjamin literally means this is my favorite son. So he names his son, not the son of my sorrow, but my favorite son. So this baby battle that began back in Genesis 29 has now become a war of attrition. Leah is now barren and Rachel is now dead. And we're given for the very first time the complete list of the 12 children who would later become tribes of Israel. Verses 22 through 26. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padanaram. Point number six, the blessing or the birthright epilogue. Now remember, Abraham had more than one son. He had two sons that are predominantly written about in the scripture, but only one son of the promise. In fact, when God speaks of Isaac, he says, your son, your only son. As if to say, all of these other children, they are from your biological body, but they don't count in terms of what we're speaking about here, Abraham. Jacob, I'm sorry, Isaac has two sons, but only one of them receives the promise. Jacob, not Esau. Jacob has how many sons? Twelve. What's going to happen to them? Which of them are going to receive the promise? Well, in one sense, on the one hand, when we get to Genesis 49, we see that all of them are going to be included in some form of spiritual inheritance. That's what happens with them as they become later the nation of Israel. However, the seed of promise that will result in the messianic rule cannot be passed down to more than one child. Only one of these is going to carry the line of Christ. He Only one of these is going to have the one come through whom... Uh, he would crush the head of the serpent that we've been talking about in the entire book of Genesis. This seed must pass to one of the 12. Who is it going to go to? Now, last week, Jacob did a phenomenal job explaining why Simeon and Levi would not be the ones to carry the promised seed. It was due to their violence against the Shechemites, the ones that they massacred as they were recovering from their surgeries. But what about the oldest? Normally, the blessing would go to the oldest. What about Reuben? We find the answer in verse 22. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and he lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now, just as a side note, the fact that it says he heard about it and he did nothing about it 
is very interesting. We see him continue to be passive, just like he was in the text last week. However, it is more interesting here to focus on what is going on with this guy, Reuben, and what in the world is he thinking in the situation with Bilhah? This was a power play by Reuben. Rachel is now dead, and he is going to begin acting as though he is in charge of the family. He is attempting to, to show his dominance. He is declaring to all that Jacob, that limping old man, who at this time is probably 80 years old, he's not in charge any longer. I am now master of this family. We see this commonly in the Old Testament when somebody was trying to declare that they were now in charge of the throne, for example, in Israel, like David's son Absalom. What does he immediately do? He declares his dominance by taking over the harem. So this is a power play by Reuben, and it's possible that this was also, in Reuben's mind, a way for him to ensure that his mother, Leah, was now the one who was primary, meaning that Bilhah, Rachel's servant, is not going to take the place of Rachel as the favorite. But this power play by Reuben would not result in him getting much glory. It would not result in him ultimately being the ruler. It would not result in him having much power or authority. It would not result in him taking the place of Jacob. Instead, this is how we see Jacob pass over him with the blessing that uh, he is giving out to his children in Genesis chapter 49. Here we read in Genesis 49, 3 through 4, Reuben, you are my firstborn, speaking directly to him. You are my might and the first fruits of my strength. You are preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, but you are unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. Why? Why not, Dad? Because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. And then he doesn't any longer speak to him. He will never speak to Reuben again. Instead, he looks at everyone else and he yells something that he never seems to have actually approached Reuben about in the past. And he says, he went up to my couch, declaring to the entire room, maybe they didn't know what happened. Well, now they know. I, uh, Jacob had heard of it. Did everyone else know? We don't know. But now everyone is aware Reuben had offended his father greatly. Reuben had sinned against his father. Reuben had tried to take authority from his father. And for that reason, the blessing of the promised seed is going to pass over him. Now, although we don't have time to expound upon this in detail, I will simply mention that the blessing does pass on to the fourth son, Judah. And it is through his line that the Messiah will come. However, next summer, we're going to get to chapter 38. And you're going to see that that rivals chapter 34 that we talked about last week in terms of being the most disturbing passage, perhaps in the entire Old Testament. It is, it is absolutely amazing how bad of a guy Judah is. Yet the promised seed goes to him. So why is it given to him and not Reuben? Well, not because Judah was a righteous man, but solely because of the mercy of God. And as we'll see next summer when we arrive at chapter 38, it's also because it seems that Reuben was a repentant man. So unlike, unlike uh, I'm sorry, not Reuben, but Judah was a repentant man. So unlike Reuben, who continued on in his sinful pride and his preeminent heart, it seems that Judah was a repentant man. Likewise, all who inherit the blessings of God, it's not due to your worth or your worthiness. God did not save you because he saw you and was like, wow, I just need that guy on my team. If I was drafting the dream team for my church, I wouldn't put me in it. I, I'm just amazed at the fact that God loved us so much that he would look at sinners like us and he would say, you're not worthy, but I want you in. I want you as part of my family. 
I know that you don't deserve the promises, but I'm going to give them to you anyway. Abraham didn't deserve them. Isaac didn't deserve them. Jacob didn't deserve them. And still we see Reuben does not deserve them. We have been blessed to experience salvation. Why? Solely because of the grace of God that he has richly poured out on us. Point number seven, Isaac's epilogue. So Isaac, the father of Jacob, is now dying. Verse 28. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is an interesting situation. We've talked so much this summer about reconciliation. There's so many opportunities to do that in these texts. I wonder if Jacob had the opportunity to reconcile with his father before he died. He's there in the land. I wonder if he ever went back and spoke to him. We don't know. It's not told to us. If so, what was that like? Can you imagine? Jacob lied to his father's face 40 years earlier. Isaac thought he was dying 40 years earlier, and that's why he passed on the blessing, but now he's still living. Did Jacob ever go back and apologize? Now that he's finally returned, did he ever take the time to try to correct the relationship that was broken? Perhaps he tried, and his father was uninterested in reconciliation. Perhaps he tried, and his father was too old to understand what was happening, and he was just in the later days of his life, and his mind had gone. Perhaps they did reconcile, and they both felt much sorrow over the years of their separation. We have no idea what happened. But I just want to make a reminder of what we've talked about so far this summer, to reconcile with those with whom your relationships have been broken. Regardless of whether or not these two reconciled, I want to give just a simple, obvious, practical point here. It's not something to put off. Don't put off reconciliation. After the sermon when I spoke about the reconciliation of Jacob and Esau, I had so many people in this church come to me and say, I realized as you were preaching, there was something that I needed to do. There was someone that I needed to go to. And perhaps that was on your heart then and you let it fade and it has just gone off into the ether somewhere and you've forgotten to do that thing. Do not put off reconciliation. Don't wait because you never know how much time you will have and how much time they will have. I will never forget, um, several years ago, I was at a funeral for a friend who had died, and he had been estranged from his mother. His mother and his relationship was terrible. I don't think they had spoken for over 20 years. And then the son died. And the mother at the funeral was just overwhelmed with sorrow and bitterness and guilt. And as we were preparing to lower the casket into the ground, she made the people stop and move away from the casket and she threw herself on top of it. And she was weeping and mourning for her son. She was just declaring, I wish we would have fixed it. I wish we would have made it better. I wish we would just go back and, and, and change all these things that we have destroyed. And at the funeral, she was just, I've never seen anyone outpour emotion like this. And why? She did not reconcile when there was a chance. So if, if you were convicted earlier this summer about the need for reconciliation with others, do not wait. Do not hesitate. More than that, if you were pricked in your heart as I was preaching about those things or others were preaching about that kind of reconciliation earlier this year, there's a greater kind of reconciliation that we spoke of, the reconciliation between you and God. And if you sat here at that time understanding I am not right with God. 
I am far from him. I am the enemy of God. And you said, I need to reconcile with him. And then you walked out and you forgot it and you just put it off and put it off and put it off. Do not put it off any longer. Do not hesitate to be reconciled to God. That is the great call that I have to give you today. Be reconciled to him. He has sent his son to redeem sinners like you and me. He came so that he might save us. He did the work of reconciliation. All we do is say thank you and accept his forgiveness. All we do is receive the blessing of his love. So don't put it off. Be reconciled to God. And as far as it depends on you, be reconciled with men. Point number eight, Esau's epilogue. In verse 28, we see that Esau came to assist with the funeral of Isaac. Esau seems to have completely redeemed himself from the earlier parts of the book, right? I mean, so far, everything seems to be going in a better direction with his life. There's nothing that we can say that's wrong about him at this point. If we just left the story here, Esau probably comes off looking like the good guy. Much better than Jacob. He forgave Jacob. He's a hard worker. He's now showing respect and honor to his father. But Esau is not a good guy. Esau is still the bad guy. He is the epitome of a worldly-minded man. He has no care for God. He has no fear of God before his eyes. And in order to see this more clearly, we need to jump forward to the next chapter just briefly. We don't have time to examine the whole chapter, which gives his genealogy. But we will just simply glance at a couple verses. Look at chapter 36, verses 1 through 3. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. I can't even pronounce this name. Olahebamah, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite. And Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. Now, Moses is reminding the reader here of something very important. This happened a long time ago. This happened back in chapter 27, 26 and 27. So why is Moses writing about this here? We know this truth. He is doing this to remind us Esau has married the people he is not supposed to. Esau has become the enemy. Jump down to verses, 30, uh, verses 6 through 8. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, all his property that he acquired in the land of Canaan. And he went into a land far from his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, just like we had seen with Abraham and Lot. And the land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. It repeats this. Why does he repeat again, Esau is Edom? He does that because as the people of God were entering the land of Canaan, when Moses would have written this, what we see taking place is that Edom is the enemy. The phrase Esau is, is, is Edom was written by Moses to indicate something very important. This is not the friend of Israel. In fact, the Edomites will always be the enemy of Israel until they are eventually destroyed. They are are many prophecies in the Bible. We don't have time to look into all of them. If you want a short, concise one, just read the book of Obadiah. The whole book, it's just one chapter, is an oracle, a prophecy against the nation of Edom. And in it, it refers back all the way to Esau as being an enemy of God. We see also, for example, in Ezekiel 25, verses 12 through 13. Thus says the Lord God, because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah and has grievously offended in taking vengeance on them, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against Edom. 
I will cut man from it, and I will cut off every beast. I will make it desolate from Teman to Dedan. They shall fall, all of them, by the sword. And I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the anger of my hand by my people Israel. And they shall do in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath. And they shall know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. This is not the friend of Israel. Esau is not the good guy. He might look like a good person, but he is the enemy of God. The person who lives a decent, comparatively moral life, but rejects God is the enemy of God. So your really friendly neighbor or that co-worker that's like fun and funny and you enjoy working with them because they make your job fun and enjoyable, that sweet old lady who's always nice to your kids and gives them cookies, they're all sinners before holy God. They're a nice person and probably even a better person than you are or I am, but before God, they do not measure up. God was not pleased with Esau. Esau will not be pleased, God will not be pleased with nominally good people who ignore God and love the world. Now, if you're listening to my voice and you find yourself in this place, perhaps for the first time, I want you to know that the grace of God is for all sorts of people, all sorts of sinners, people who are murderers and people who are outwardly very acceptable, socially great people, but they are in their heart full of pride against God. You need Jesus more than you know you need Jesus. So do I. And the Lord is able to save, so run to Jesus, who alone can save. Point number nine, Jacob's epilogue. Now, it's well worth noting that in the previous chapter, the one we learned about the defiling of Dinah and the execution of the Shechemites, Jacob at that point is at his most cowardly. There is never a point in the text where we will ever find him being more of a coward than that. We see him back down from his responsibility to care for and protect his family. And most of all, we see that he fails to trust in God. And instead, he's filled with fear of all these people, the people that God said he would protect them from. It's also worth noting that in the, that the name of God is completely absent from chapter 34. Never once is he mentioned. Never once is he mentioned. God's name is completely gone. It seems as though Jacob has forgotten God during those trials. And that's why Jacob acts so fear, fearfully and, and cowardly. But in Genesis chapter 35, it's, it's the exact opposite in many ways. Now we see Jacob is taking control of the spiritual direction of his family. We see him bury those false gods. We see him lead his family out as they travel through the lands of his people, he, of the people that he was afraid of. You remember when he, he said, these people are going to kill me? God says, I want you to walk through their land. And he does. And they're all terrified of him. So now we see that God is with him. Also, in this chapter, the name of God is mentioned 22 times. Repetition is very important. 10 times his name is mentioned directly. 11 times it's mentioned in the names that Jacob gives to places like Bethel, which means Beth, the house of El, God. And one time it's mentioned when God says his name himself. And when God speaks his name, it's not the generic name of God, but a special one, which helps us understand exactly what God is doing in this passage. Follow along in Genesis 35, verses 9 through 15. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel should, shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. God had already called Jacob Israel, right? Didn't we learn this when Jonathan Rodriguez was preaching and God wrestled with Jacob and said, your name is no longer Jacob, now it's Israel? Why does he do it again? 
Well, I think there's a couple reasons here. First of all, because Jacob has not been acting like Israel. He's been acting like the old Jacob again. And now he's reminding him, you are Israel. You are not Jacob. You are not the thief. You are not the liar. You are not the usurper. Now you are my child. But I also think he's doing this as a way to clue us in to what God is doing in this text. It's a clue as to what the meaning is. We are going to connect this now with when God renamed his grandfather, Abram, to Abraham. Look at what he says here in verse 11. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Now, pause. This is the name that God uses, God Almighty, or in Hebrew, El Shaddai. It has only been used twice before in the whole Bible. The first time that it was ever used is in Genesis chapter 17, when God was making a covenant with Abram, and he changed Abram's name. So we see the name change, and then we see this name of God being used. Abraham, I am the Lord Almighty. Now he says the same exact thing to his grandson. We also see this name of God being used by Isaac when he blessed Jacob in Genesis chapter 28, verses 3 and 4. So remember back to what happened when Jacob stole the blessing. He went in, he lied and said, I'm, his brother, I'm my brother, and he was given a blessing, and then he leaves. Then the same day, he goes back to his father, who sends him away to Badanaram, and his father once again, probably begrudgingly, blesses him, and it is then that he says this, God Almighty bless you. God Almighty bless you. El Shaddai bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. And what will he do to you? May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. So Isaac blessed Jacob so that he might receive the same promises that were given to Abraham. But Jacob didn't receive those promises in any way until now. Now that he is taking possession of the land that was given to Abraham, and he won't take that possession in fullness until long after this, 400 years later. So what did God promise Jacob? Genesis 35, verse 11. He says, be fruitful and multiply. At this point, He's pretty much done having kids. Like at this point, Benjamin is just about to be born. So when he says be fruitful and multiply here, I do not think he's saying, I want you to have a lot more children. I think when he says be fruitful and multiply, he is again connecting it to the covenant promises. And the expectation is that his children will then be the ones who are fruitful and multiply, which, which makes some of the things that happen later in Genesis so terrible when people are trying to limit the being fruitful and multiplication. And a nation and company shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land of your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel, the house of God. The same thing that he had named it in the same place, 40 years earlier. Jacob's life has been filled with many failings. As we've looked at him, this is a terrible person who God has changed very slowly to be more like the Lord. But now he has returned to this place where God first had an encounter with him. And once again, God speaks to him. And last time Jacob was here, he made a vow. In Genesis 28, verses 20 through 22, we read these words. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, conditional, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go, 
and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Conditional, if, then. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Well, again, there's a lot here. We can't focus on all of it. Just one thing I want to highlight. When God told Jacob to leave Padan Aram, the house of Laban, and to leave that place, he came back and said, I want you to go to the place where you saw me in Bethel, and I want you to complete your vow. But this time, when he goes, it is not Jacob who is making a deal with God, but God who is making a covenant with Jacob. Jacob has now been humbled, and now he sees that God has done exceedingly and abundantly more than he ever imagined in order to bless him. He said, if you just give me enough bread to eat and just keep clothes on my body, that's all I need. When I get back here to the land, then you'll be my God. And he comes back with 12 kids and he comes back with all of this stuff, much more than he anticipated. He was not merely sustained, but he was blessed with flocks and herd and family in abundance. But did Jacob complete his vow? It doesn't say that he sacrifices thousands of animals, which would have been the 10%. But instead, he makes a simple drink offering. He pours out the drink and he pours out the oil. This has led some scholars to argue that Jacob actually never fulfills his vow. And they would say, Jacob is being selfish here. We see Jacob returning and being like Israel. I don't think that's the case because as God was covenanting with him, God could just tell him, go sacrifice those animals now and do it. Others argue that Jacob probably did it but it's just not mentioned in the text. However, I think I would probably agree with those scholars who see Jacob here as fulfilling his vow in a different way, using a different understanding. He is no longer saying, I will just give you 10%. He is now realizing that he gives everything of himself to God. He is dedicating 100% of himself as a living sacrifice. He is no longer going to attempt to claim anything of his, his own, and he will never again attempt to expand his own wealth. He seems to finally transition from a man who is concerned about things and stuff and possessions to a man who has finally understood the greater treasure that is found in God. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, we read the famous words, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. This is the kind of service that he is to give all of himself to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, let us place ourselves on the altar of worship by always seeking God's glory above our own. At this point, we're rapidly going to move now through our final point, but this is not a loose end that is going to be tied. It is not resolved in Genesis 35. Instead, point number 10 is this, the Messiah's prologue. There's an interesting parallel that occurs from the Old Testament to the New Testament. This conversation that God has with Jacob is going to be the last verbal communication that God has with anyone for 400 years. So God speaks to Jacob right here in Bethel. He verbally communicates a covenant and then shuts his mouth for 400 years. He will not open his mouth to another person until he is on that mountain with Moses in the burning bush and speaks to Moses from the bush. At that point, the word of God would come forth through Moses, and God's people would be delivered from their bondage. At the close of the Old Testament, again, there is a time when God stops speaking, 
and for 400 years he does not open his mouth. And then God broke the silence and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and the word delivered God's people not from bondage in Egypt, not from that kind of slavery, but from the bondage of sin. I want you to consider another parallel here. God spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, and he said to them, You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. But Israel was not an obedient son. Israel was always a disobedient son. For the remainder of the Old Testament, it is going to reveal how Israel failed over and over and over again to be a son of righteousness as they had called to be. Adam was called the son of God in Luke 3.38, and he failed to serve as a son of righteousness. Israel failed to serve as a son of righteousness. The second Adam was Christ, and he succeeded. The true Israel was Christ, and in him all of the covenants are fulfilled. And he gives us a new covenant, and because of that covenant, we read in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Pay attention! That we should be called children, or literally sons, of God. And so we are. We can be a child of righteousness, not because of our works, but because of him who worked on our behalf. Second Corinthians one twenty says that in Jesus, all the promises are yes and amen. And that's true. That includes the promises to Jacob. These promises are fulfilled in Jesus. All of what he is promising Jacob is now complete and fulfilled in the Messiah. Now, we don't have any time to flesh that out. I'm really excited to tell you that we're going to do like a six to eight week series on the big picture of the Bible uh, starting in January. Um, The covenants are like the backbone of the Bible. So naturally, we're going to focus on these things in detail at that time. But for now, I simply want to close by encouraging you one final time. Dig into every text until you see how it reveals Christ. Jesus gave us the ultimate hermeneutic in John chapter 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. Jacob's life points us to Jesus over and over and over again. It shows us Christ. And we rejoice to find that Jesus fulfills the promises to Jacob every time. Let's pray.